Again, I'd like to welcome everyone to Faith Reformed Baptist Church. Good to see the Lord's people gather together once again. I may have a long message. I know you don't want to hear that because it's so warm in here. I apologize for the temperature. Uh, but the witnesses that were sent of God to testify of him, they did have fire come out of their mouths. I'll try not to make things too hot in here. It is... Um, a wonderful passage of scripture that we're looking at today. It is, I would imagine that this passage of scripture has been talked about by many Christians around the dinner table, around just fellowship and so on. I can remember talking about this passage of scripture when I was a young man. Uh, and so it's very familiar. But before we get into what the scriptures mean in our observations, if you haven't figured this out by now, I have a, a system that I use. I usually come right up front and tell you the doctrine I want you to learn. And then sometimes I have an introduction. But then I have observations of the passages. After the observations of the passages, I have a practical application. And then I have a simple conclusion. I do it every week. You should have figured it out by now. However, this morning, my simple doctrine is this. The church is the witness of God in Christ in this present evil world. And you may be saying to yourself, I, I knew that already, but I want you to know this doctrine from this passage because this passage has been misinterpreted so many times. We need to see the truth of this passage for you to see your place as a witness for God. I do have a bit of a review this morning. There are seven apocalyptic visions within the apocalypse. And for the most part, every vision covers the same period of time, from the ascension of Christ to the return of Christ. The first vision we have was the church on earth. We remember where the Lord told John to write letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. We saw in the second vision God's throne and the seven seals that were in the scroll on, in the hand of the one who sat on the throne. And we saw how Christ was the only one worthy to break the seals on that scroll. Now the third vision, which is part of what we're looking at this morning, the end part, is from the perspective of those that dwell on the earth. You see, we had the church on the earth, God's throne in heaven with the seven seals. And now we see from the perspective of those that dwell on the earth hearing the seven trumpets. And so last week we looked at this trumpet being sounded. And we are in, we have just finished the fifth trumpet. We are now currently in the sixth. We're just about to go into the sixth trumpet. We're in the midst of the sixth trumpet. But I want you to remember that these pauses that seem to be between the different trumpet blows are still at the same period of time from the ascension of Christ to the return of Christ. But they help us to understand the events of the earth. So this second pause that we're looking at, the idea last week that we looked the, uh, of the measuring of the temple just before the ministering of the two churches. And it's a very important lesson. It's only two verses in chapter 11. 
verses 1 and 2, talked about John being told to measure the temple that he saw. And so I want you to have this extended introduction again. I want you to have these things in your mind that we're going to go back a little bit to the measuring of the temple, not much, but then go into understanding who these witnesses are. And so I do have a little bit of an introduction to this to prepare you for it. Number one, this book is about Jesus Christ and his persecuted saints. Now I say that because many times people are tempted to go to the book of Revelation to satisfy a somewhat carnal curiosity about if they can figure out the puzzle of when the Lord's going to come back. And then they look at the Revelation and they look to the newspapers and they look at the events and they see if they can't figure this out. But I want you to understand that the book is about Christ and persecuted saints. And we must understand this from the beginning, that Christ is shown in these apocalyptic visions as ruling. He is ruling his church. He is governing this world. And he's governing the lives of men, both private and public. He is our sovereign Lord. And he is in control. Now, the trumpets are being seen from the earth point of view, telling that there is a wrath of God. His wrath is being revealed against a sinful world. And now, we are in the midst of this sixth trumpet blow, and we must see that there is a testimony on the earth concerning Christ. And this testimony does also involve the warning of the wrath of God. That's part of what the witnesses are testifying to. And so, it is important that we keep in mind that we saw the measuring of the temple, and that measuring of the temple taught us this, that God has a plan to protect and preserve his church. Consider that. Throughout all the history of the earth, men have come and gone. Nations have come and gone. Kingdoms have come and gone. Nero is dead. Domitian is dead. The Roman Empire is completely gone. There have come all types of despotic type of rulers. The only one that is still here among the conflicting parties is the church. They have remained. And God will keep his church alive and preserve them. No one can take the souls of his people from the hand of God Almighty. But it does not mean that there is not going to be severe conflict. It does not mean that there's not going to be severe conflict. Now, I want to remind you of a concept, uh, a literary device, actually. It's irony. Now, I know I've mentioned this before, but irony is a little bit important when it comes to seeing how God has taught us very important lessons. Irony is when something is, shall we say, very different than what they actually are. That's what irony is. Now, the reason I'm bringing that up is that we're going to get into a situation where we see a severe case of irony. Why do I say this? Because, you see, you have been just told that God has protected his people. He has measured his temple. He has a plan. No one can destroy his church then the very next thing told to you is that his witnesses are going to have war declared against them and that they are going to be uh, conquered 
and they're going to be killed. Right after you were told, God is going to take care of them. He is going to take care of you. But then he comes right back and said, you will be conquered, you will be killed. That's a little bit of irony. But you see, he told us first that we are preserved to prepare us for the fight, to let us know that our souls are safe. But then we are now prepared to go into the battle. It is a jolting type of truth. It is a type of understanding that sometimes it sticks with you and you'll never forget about it. It's one of my favorite observations, frankly. Remember, I, I taught a lesson a while back concerning how the Lord, after the crucifixion, was uh, just about to be ascended up, and he went and he joined himself to two of his disciples traveling to Emmaus. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. How they talked with each other, and how one was saying to the other, Oh, we thought that all these things would have brought about the Messiah. And the Lord, walking among them, whom they didn't know was the Lord, he acted as though he didn't understand what they were talking about. And they asked him this question. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here, the years, and these days? Are you the only one that doesn't know? And the irony was this, that the Lord was truly the only one who did know. He was the only one who did know. And now we have a similar situation where the church is being told everything is going to be fine. Everything is going to be good. And then a beast will arise out of the pit and kill you. No problem, right? It is a fact of irony. But it is not what appears. It seems like, like the beast is going to be in control. But the fact of the matter is we are safe in the hand of God. We are safe in His hand. So this morning, I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. Understand that God has measured His temple, that He has a plan. Remember how we went back to the book of Ezekiel? We looked at that. Do you remember how in that vision, that temple, that place where God dwelt, had a river flowing out of it, and it flowed to all the land. The land filled with salt and poisonous things. And yet wherever the river flowed, the waters became fresh. And do you remember the name of that city? It wasn't Jerusalem. It wasn't any other name. The name of the city was, the Lord is there. Now, do you want to know the city of God's name? Do you recall how St. Augustine, I call him a saint because that's what the history books call him, I believe he was, just as we are saints. But he wrote this series of documents called The City of God. Almost got through it one time. It's very long, but it's very good. They were like current events of the day where he said, this is how God is working. And if you want to know the city of God, it's within the temple of God, which means it is the people of God where he dwells. So with that in mind, I want you to remember the phrase, the, the holy city, is different than the phrase, the great city. Because we're going to see that several times in this chapter. There will be the holy city, there will be the great city. The holy city has in the middle of it the dwelling place of God. The other great city has within it all those who hate God and his people. And so with that, let's continue on.
If we misunderstand that in these first two verses, there's a great likelihood that we're going to misunderstand a great deal of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And so as part of my introduction, I want to give you a little bit of a reminder of the different viewpoints of how to interpret this book. There are three different ways of looking at this. The futurist way, the preterist way, and the idealistic way. Now those are words chosen by other men, not me. They are found in theology books and, and other writings. But I want you to remind you that there is other Christians, other Christians, and I call them brothers, that have differing views on the apocalypse. Even though I disagree with them, I still call them brother. But I still disagree. The futurist is by far the most popular view today. Books are written about it. Novels are written about it. Movies are made about it. The futurist view has to do with the secret rapture, has to do with the idea that one day a temple is going to be built over in Jerusalem. All these different things. I'm going to tell you that the futurist view, they avoid interpreting symbolic passages. That's their business. They're free to do that. I do not do that. I would rather interpret symbolic passages, but they avoid interpreting it. They have many times a view of dispensationalism among their brethren. Now, a dispensationalism has to do with the idea that God deals with his people in a different way during different times. And I, to a certain degree, agree with that. There is an Old Testament dispensation and there is a New Testament dispensation, but it doesn't mean that God deals with his people differently. He saves us the same way in any dispensation. It is by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, by his atoning work. But they have different views of that. Some of the more extreme dispensational people will actually believe that during the Old Testament, people were actually saved by the Mosaic Covenant. I do not believe that. The book of Hebrews is very clear on that. We are saved by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself. Now, the reason I bring this up is that it is very common to believe that in verses 1 and 2 here, that John is told to measure a physical, real temple, which some people believe is going to be built in Jerusalem in the future. Now, one of the aspects of a futurist is to believe that the people of Israel who will build a physical temple are different than the people of the church, and they never should be confused. Their idea is that the church is different than ethnic Israel. And I look at it like this. This is my view. This is the view that I'm pointing out to you. This is the view that I think is from the scripture. And the view is this. You have people that are physical Gentiles. You have people that are physical Jews that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are both spiritual Jews. You also have people that are physical Gentiles and physical Jews that do not believe in Jesus Christ. They are spiritual Gentiles. There is the saved and there is the unsaved, whether they're Jew or Gentile. But the dispensational view will say, no, there is the physical Jew and he will build a temple one day in Jerusalem. And no doubt uh, during the past decades, uh, this view has been bolstered by the idea that the Jewish people, the physical people, have actually had a nation established in 1948. And that they believe that one day a physical temple will be there, will be built there, and that John was given the instructions to measure that temple. Now, even though 
I would disagree with that. I'm not going to fight over that. I'm not going to be disagreeable about that. I'm not going to be nasty about that. But I will be true to my obligation to you to teach you as best I can from the book of the Revelation, led by the Spirit, and by, I'll say, spiritual common sense. When I was a young boy, I went to churches because uh, my mother would take me, and there was a common hymn sung all the time. I've, I've heard it so many times. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop in that bright land where we'll never grow old. And I'm not going to say, don't sing that song. It's a good song, I suppose. But I'll tell you what, people have sung that song, and they've said to themselves, I'm tired of living in a trailer. I want my mansion. But let me tell you about what a real mansion is. These bodies are tents. One day we receive a glorified body where the Spirit of God indwells us. Individually, he indwells us here. But one day as a glorified person, you will have the full dwelling of the Holy Spirit. And as a corporate group of people, God will dwell among us. And so with that, I want you to understand that I am not a futurist in that point. Now, the second school is the Praetorist. Now, the Praetorist has the idea that the events in this chapter and, and virtually all of the book of the Revelation of the Apocalypse is already happened. It's in the past. There is a great difficulty with that because, you see, in this passage in verses 1 and 2, there is a measuring of the temple. Now, they would have to say that John wrote the Apocalypse at least in the year 60 A.D., because the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. But we know for a fact that John penned this epistle in 90. It's, I don't know how else to say it. It just didn't happen that way. I am telling you and teaching you from the viewpoint of the idealist, which interpret the apocalyptic passages as symbols that represent literal truth. Now, if someone says to me, well, you don't believe the Bible literally. I believe the truth of the Bible literally, but I believe the literal truth is told to us many times in symbolic language, and that's the difference. I want us to now to look at some of these symbols in this language, or in this passage, because if we do not do that, then we will be, in my opinion, we will be led astray. And so let's go to the scriptures. Verses 1 and 2, we'll briefly go over them. Let me read them to you again. These are the observations that we have for this morning. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, and this is being told to John, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Those three things. The temple of God, the altar, and those that worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it, is, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, we're not going to spend any time about the measuring of the temple. We know that God is going to protect his people. But what we did not cover last time was that God said, do not measure the court outside the temple. Now, you may say, well, I'm not too sure how important that is. Well, it is very important. For one thing, what is the difference between measuring the temple and not measuring the court outside? Well, I believe that the difference is, is that the court outside will be trampled by the nations. They'll be trampled by the nations. And not only 
the court outside, but the city itself, the temple itself, will be trampled by the nations. However, what is the difference between the court outside and the temple itself? The difference is this. One is measured and the other is not. One is measured and the other is not. One is protected and the other is not. So what is this court outside the temple? I will suggest this, that they are people, they represent people that simply are not in the temple. They're just not in the temple. They are outside the temple, but they are by the temple. They are close to the temple. When the nations look at the temple, they will see these temp people near the temple. They may believe that they are of the temple. They may even believe they came from the temple, but they are not in the temple. And it looks like this. Not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, is going to be in his presence. In fact, the Lord will say, I don't know you. I never knew you. The difference between these people and those inside the temple is that the people outside the temple may be associated with the temple. Now, how can you tell? Can you look inside the temple of God? And let me rephrase that. Can I look into your heart to see if the Spirit of God is dwelling there? No, I cannot, but God knows. God knows. Now, the world may think that these people are of the temple, but they are not. As far as I'm concerned, the people that have not the Spirit of God within them are only collaborators with those who want to trample down the holy city because they will not hold to the doctrines of the gospel. They will not hold to the love of Jesus Christ. They will have different views. They will have heresies and they will have confusion of doctrine very similar to the scorpions that came out with heads and tails. Remember the heads were the leaders and the tails were the teachers. And these are excellent people to be teachers of false doctrine. And so I can say, it is easy enough to see that there are those inside the temple under God's protection and those outside the temple. Now the trampling of this holy city is to be done in a, at a period of time. As a matter of fact, let me read this to you. Let me get my notes rather here. It reads this. Measure not the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city forty and two months. Now, as we read on in this passage of Scripture, we're going to see that the witnesses have a time of witnessing, which are 1,260 days. Now, if you had a calculator, you may say, well, that comes to 42 months. Well, why didn't they just say that? What is the difference between 42 months and 1,260 days? As a matter of fact, what is the difference between those and three and a half years? They all seem the same period of time. Now, what have I said concerning these visions? They start at the ascension of Christ. They end with his return. They're all the same period of time. But sometimes you can measure this period of time differently. When I was a young boy standing on a street, uh, about three years old, four years old, I had a dime in my hand, and I knew an ice cream truck was going to come by. And I would just couldn't wait. You know what I was measuring time in? Minutes. I was measuring my time in minutes. 
Now, if you have bills to pay, you may say, well, how often do you have to pay your electric bill? Well, I pay it every month. Do you look forward to it? Can't wait for the next time I pay my bill. And when do you do it? By the month. Do you see? There's sometimes you have to measure things differently. When it comes to the persecution of the church, the Lord is saying, it's going to be the same period of time. You're going to be persecuted all the time, but it's going to be a monthly deal. It's not going to be all the time. But the witnesses were given daily responsibilities to witness to this world. Every day. 100, two, you know, 1,260 days. Every single day. But don't worry. You will be persecuted throughout the entire time. But not every day. But not every day. Revelation chapter 11 verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Now, the idea that the angel, whom I believe is the Lord Jesus Christ, when the angel says, and, I believe that there is a connecting statement between the idea that he's saying, measure the temple, the true people of God inside protect them, and my witnesses. You see, to me, there is a connection. The church of Jesus Christ is the same as these two witnesses. It is implied there. He says, I will grant my witnesses authority. He clearly states that the authority is given in order to achieve their primary goal, and that is to be witnesses. Now, do we have any scripture to support that? Do we understand the idea that God has given his authority and power to his church? Well, we have the Great Commission, do we not? The Great Commission reads this, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Notice the time span. From that time, just before he had ascended to the end of the age, he has given authority to his witnesses, to his people, to his church. Now, again, recall in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, a giving of the Holy Spirit. And listen to why the Holy Spirit is given. This is at the time of the ascension. But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the world. And so we see the authority is an important thing. The authority and the power. The authority granted, but the power given. There is another area that I want to discuss concerning how these witnesses are the church. I want to read to you Luke chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now, you may say, well, now you're stretching it a little bit just because there's two. You know, they're being sent by two. But I want you to listen to what happened when these witnesses came back. In chapter 10, verse 17, we read this. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said unto them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Are we beginning to see some of these things in the book of the Apocalypse? Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. 
Did not we see things like this in the apocalypse where the scorpions have heads that will lead people astray, but tails that have the false doctrines? And what does it mean that he has been given authority to tread on serpents and scorpions? You see, we have been given the word to be eaten, to be sweet in our mouth, even though bitter in our belly, but we have the knowledge of the gospel to tread on scorpions with the false doctrines that they spew out from their tails and exercise from their heads of authority. We are the ones that witness against it. We have the truth of the gospel, and we are to stand firm with it, knowing that they could end our lives and that they could persecute us, but we have the knowledge that our souls are safe in the hands of God, giving us courage to be witnesses. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Do you see the correlation there? Your names are written in heaven. So tread down the scorpions. Oh, they might bite. Oh, they might give you some real pain. And they might even kill you. But we have the truth. And our names are written in heaven. And so with that, we continue on. To the last part of that, um, to that verse that we're looking at, verse number three. Let's address the idea that these witnesses are clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth is for mourning, a common practice that symbolically represents a self-debasement, mourning, and repentance. These witnesses are to witness in sackcloth. Now, is that to be taken literally? Can we identify these two individuals by how they dress and whether they can call down fire from heaven? Because around the dinner table, many people will say, well, they turn water to blood, they call down fire. That's got to be Moses and Elijah. Wasn't those two that were seen on the Mount of Transfiguration? Don't they represent the law and the prophets? These would be the ideal individuals if they were individuals, but they're not. It's the church. It is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, with that, this identifies their message. They are to preach repentance. Salvation by the grace of God, but you must repent. Repent or perish. Repent or die. And believe and live. Believe and live. The sweetness and the harshness. It is a tough gospel. Because those that will hear you will love it. But those that are offended will hate you. It's just the way it is, folks. It's just the way it is. Now, I, I'm going to be running out of time. I'm sorry, but uh, we have next week, Lord willing, if he doesn't come back. And we'll continue with this. But I want to take verses 4, 5, and 6 together because they belong together. Let me read this to you. These are two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone will harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, and that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power to over the power over the waters and to turn them to blood and to strike the earth and with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So who in the world are these witnesses? Remember the futurists are going to tell you, well, they're, they're Moses and Elijah, or maybe Moses and Enoch. But I'm telling you this that if we 
assign that to them. We will miss the blessing. We will miss the message that the apocalypse has for us, that we are witnesses of Jesus Christ, and he is protecting us, and we have a mission to accomplish. We have the gospel to preach to the world. Now, let every word be established by two or three witnesses. Remember how that comes from the scripture? That is why there are two witnesses, because every word is going to be established. Now, how many churches written in chapters 1 through 3 to the churches in Ephesus, I mean in, in Asia Minor, how many of those churches received no rebuke at all? I'll give you a guess. Two. Two churches. There are two churches that received no rebuke at all. Now, I'm not saying that every church between the ascension of Christ and history turn are those two churches. No. We have plenty of churches with problems, but the ones that are witnesses. And how many do you need? Well, two is enough. Every word shall be established in the mouths of these witnesses. Two is enough. And so what do we say about this? The witnesses are to bear witness to the testimony of God, to preach the gospel, and they are to wear sackcloth. And so this is how we are to recognize them. They sound like Zechariah, Jeremiah, Elias, Elijah, and Moses. They sound like them. Why do I say that? Because these verses indicate that they do the very same things that these men did. The very same things that these men did, these two witnesses are going to do. I didn't pull their names out of a hat. I just pulled, didn't pull them out of the air. In verse number four, we have Zechariah mentioned or alluded to. Zechariah chapter four. In Zechariah chapter four, we are going to be receiving an explanation of the vision of the candlesticks and two olive trees. Now, I don't know what Art taught this morning, but he may have taught that. I wasn't here. I was teaching another class. But Zechariah chapter 4 refers to the two to candlesticks and to the two olive trees. Now, these two olive trees, one on either side of the candlestick, had olive oil supplied to the candlestick to keep the light burning. Now, I knew after I read Jonathan Edwards' History of Redemption, that these two men were the churches because he pointed out to me that in the first three chapters, Christ walked among his candlesticks, his churches. And now we see the olive trees supplying oil of the indwelling Holy Spirit to provide light to this dying world. In verse number five in chapter 11, there is a reference to Jeremiah, to Jeremiah. The Lord put a fire in his mouth. As a matter of fact, the Lord says, the words in your mouth are my words and they will be a fire and the people in front of you will be wood. That's what he said about Jeremiah. You see, it's not referencing Elijah. Elijah did call down fire from heaven, but he consumed two armies that were sent by Ahab to capture him. And he called down fire from heaven. But this is not a reference to Elijah. This is a reference to Jeremiah. That the words, the fire comes from his mouth to destroy those in front of him, not from heaven. In verse number six, we have a reference to Elijah. 
This is the Elijah, the one in 1 Kings chapter 17, where he stops the rain, and he's able to stop it anytime he wants. And there is a great famine in the land. But you know, he is fed not only by ravens, but by a widow, by a widow who has wheat and or flour and oil that never gives out. There's also a reference in chapter 6 to Moses. In chapter in, in Exodus chapter 7, we see Moses turning the rivers of Egypt to blood under the persecution of Pharaoh. Moses turning the water into blood. And so with that, I would say this. The waters of this world that the world seek after are not the waters that flow from the temple of God that become fresh. But when the gospel is preached, what fills their life with what they think is life is going to be turned to, the, to blood when, it's in, in when they hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it will stink in their mouth and their nose and it'll, it'll be distasteful to them. Why? Because they are the ones that killed Christ. They're the ones that hate him. They're the ones that are offended by him. The blood of Christ is an offense to them. And so with that, let's learn from these four men that the witnesses are to be like. Number one, Zechariah had a knowledge of the word of God and that Christ was providing this, this, this oil to the candlesticks. There, uh, Jeremiah had a tough love that he gave to this world because he was a compassionate man. He was the, uh, the crying prophet. He was a weeping prophet. But he had men plotted against him to kill him. Why? Because he told them the truth and they didn't like it. But he was brave enough to tell them the truth. And so he had tough love. He did not back down. And then there was Elijah. When there was nothing to eat, he still depended upon God. He still depended upon God. And then it comes to Moses. Moses, a man that was afraid to even go. I can't even speak. But he stood before Pharaoh. He stood before Pharaoh and plagued the land. Plagued the land. I'm going to say this. If we do not have knowledge and a tough love and independence upon God and the courage to stand, then how can we be witnesses? These are the witnesses of God. These are the witnesses of God. Now, I want to spend a little bit more time on the idea, how do you recognize the witnesses of God? It says in Revelation 11:5, And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. And if anyone would harm them, this is how he must be condemned. You remember when the Lord Jesus Christ was traveling through the areas of Samaria and there was a city that refused to accept them and to receive them. And James and John said this, allow us to call down fire from heaven and consume them. And what did the Lord do? He rebuked them. They just went to another city. This is not a witness that says, I will call down fire from heaven and destroy God's enemies. That's not what this witness is saying. This witness says this, the words of the Lord are in his mouth and God will make that word a fire to them because they will be like wood. As fire is to wood, so is the word of the Lord to the heart of the people that hear the gospel. 
that is how they will be dealt with. If they are not dealt with in that way, they are not the witnesses. We must confront the world with the truth of the gospel. That is how the enemies of God shall be dealt with. The enemies of God will not be killed by us physically. We are not going to do that. We're not murderers. We're not evil people. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. It is the fire that comes from the pulpit. It is the fire that comes from your lips to your neighbor. It is the gospel itself. Now, many will be offended. Some will be saved. But the fire will have its way. It is a two-edged sword. You must have repentance and you must have faith. Some will hear and some will not. Some will have the fire burn within them and the Holy Spirit will quicken them. And some will only see the fire on the day of judgment, but they will be consumed either way. The enemies of God will be consumed by the word of his mouth. Now, I don't have time to continue on, but I want you to see that it is important for us to understand that these are not entertaining visions where we say, oh, I wonder if it's this or I wonder if it's that. And they'll be very powerful. They'll be calling fire down from heaven. I'm telling you, the fire is already here. It is already coming from the mouths of God's preachers. It is coming from his people now. We are the witnesses of God. And we must understand that there will come a day that after eons or after ages or after decades of the devil, of Satan rising up against the church and they will declare war on us, they will fight against us, and they will kill us but there will come a time when these witnesses will be killed. He said, that doesn't sound like very good news to me. I'm just going to say it like this. Let me read what the scripture has to say about that. I'm having to skip a lot of things. I'm hoping not to skip the most important. Maybe I'll just cut it off right here, but I'll, I'll say it like this. The gospel must be preached throughout all the world, and then the end shall come. That's when the end comes. When the gospel has been preached to all the world. Because what does it say right here? In Revelation chapter 11, verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony. Do you see the finality of that? When they have finished their testimony. The beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. That's when the end comes. That's when the end comes. When it's the darkest, when it's the bleakest, that's when Christ shows up. That's when he comes back. And these witnesses will stand on their feet and rise up to meet Christ and will be back. It is the same period of time. From the ascension of Christ to the return of Christ. And we are his witnesses. We have been given authority and power to preach the gospel of Christ. And let us not stop. I have many things to say about this. And so we will stop right here. I apologize that I have to stop. But you know what? It's hot in here. But I'll tell you this. I'm excited that we have a small congregation. Do not let and do not despise small things. You know where I read that from? Zechariah chapter 4.
There will be some that say, we're kind of small. Do not despise small things because those that are discouraged by the smallness will be blessed by the fact that one day God will bring us in. These small things produce great things because it is God who does it. It is God who is doing it. We are his witnesses, but we are not the source of that power. It is our Lord. Our Lord. Keep your eyes on Christ. Keep your eyes on God. Speak the word. Witness. Be faithful to him. Have courage like Moses. Have dependence like Elijah. Have tough love like Jeremiah. Use the knowledge of Scripture like Zechariah. Be those prophets. Be these people. That's who we are. That's who we are. We're the witnesses of God. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Our Holy Father, we ask now that your gospel be preached with power through all the world, that repentance be preached, that the wrath of God would be made known to people, that they are in the hands of an angry God, that you are there and you are not to be trifled with. But Father, let their wounded consciences then taste of the sweet water that flows from your throne. Let them see the water of life. Let them have the life that you provide, that the atoning work of Christ and a trusting belief in him shall give them the spirit to indwell them, giving them life. Oh, Father, the life of repentance and faith. What a blessed time it is for those in this world, in this present evil and dark world, that we should live in that holy city, that we should have you dwell within us, and that we should be the witnesses until you come and receive us unto yourself. We pray that the gospel have its full reign among your people. May sinners be saved for your glory. We ask it in our Lord's name. Amen. Amen.